Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thanks for joining us once again, everybody. It's Mark's week this week and I'm really excited for this week's episode. Yeah, this takes us back to South Africa, which I think we've only been to, I want to say, on Crime Wave. And my episode about Betty as well, but I feel like I did that on my own. I don't think you were there for that episode. I do remember it though, yeah. So this is only our second proper visit to South Africa. Uh, Before we get into today's case, I just want to say that we are on a mid-season break from next week, so there's no episode week commencing the 7th of November, but we'll be back the following week. And this episode is our 200th main show episode. How exciting is that? That's mad. That is absolutely mad. It is crazy, isn't it? We knew it it was coming. Yeah, so we thought we'd have a a big case for this one. So it's quite a long episode, I think Four years and 200 episodes. (sighs) Crikey, that is, yeah, that's a lot of episodes. I know Adam on, on the UK True Crime podcast is on over 300 episodes now, so... We've still got a way to go. We're still loving it. We'll still carry on as long as you guys want us. Yeah, so thank you for still listening. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Here's to another 200, hopefully. Definitely. So this week in what is our 200th episode, we are going to revisit a high-profile celebrity murder case from 2012, which had the entire world gripped at the time. The shocking story of how a nationally adored South African model and TV personality, Reva Steenkamp, was brutally killed at the hands of her own boyfriend, Olympic sporting legend turned self-confessed killer, Oscar Pistorius, aka the Blade Runner, sent shockwaves of sadness and utter disbelief around South Africa and the rest of the world. Do you remember this, Bethan? It was oh, yeah. 2012. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, so I we'd have we would have pretty much just started working together. Um, while this was raging so. on in the courts. I don't well, think I, I started reckon... working with you until like 2014. I thought it was 2013, January. Oh, maybe. But yeah, this would, have, this would have been something we'd have talked about because for a number of reasons, but definitely when the trials happened and all of that, just, yeah, such a fascinating case and still quite um, widely discussed and debated, isn't it? It is, you're absolutely right. People still talk about it to this day. The case is unique for an array of reasons, but the most shocking factor of all was that even though it involved just one single act of violence, the devastating aftermath deprived South Africa and probably the rest of the world of not just one, but two of its national treasures. So let's set the scene. Let's go back to the blisteringly hot afternoon of the 4th of August in 2012 at London's Olympic Stadium. 26-year-old Oscar Pistorius took to the track in preparation to run in the opening heat of the men's 400-metre sprint. The event was part of the 2012 London Olympic Games. The energy and excitement in the arena was electrifying, and for good reason too. Not only were the excited crowd basking in the Olympic glory, but on this day they were hyped for another, far more unique reason. Now, it's an overused phrase, but there was one man in the Olympic Stadium who could lay claim to genuinely making history that day. South African track and field athlete Oscar Pistorius, a man who was about to do something the world had never seen before, and all eyes were on him that day. Pistorius was up against four other athletes. The runners took their marks on the starting blocks, and the whole world held its breath in anticipation for such a remarkable event. The starter gun echoed around the stadium and they were off. 
On that history-making day, Oscar Pistorius finished the race in second place, but actually the result was largely irrelevant. He could have finished last, it wouldn't have mattered in the slightest. Oscar Pistorius, the 26-year-old athlete who had endured the trauma of having both of his legs taken away as an infant, had just made history by becoming the first double amputee in recorded history to compete in the mainstream Olympics. So Incredible, this wasn't the isn't it, when you think? Like, it's it just was. amazing. Absolutely wise. It had never been done before. And of course, the Paralympics were around then. They've grown in popularity and profile since. But this was the mainstream Olympics that he was competing in. And he was a double amputee. So this was a huge deal. All eyes were on him, certainly in in the arena that day, but also in terms of the media coverage across the whole world. In the entire history of the Olympics, nobody had ever achieved such a spectacular feat as this. And at the time of this episode's release, that remains the case. This was Oscar Pistorius's moment of glory, and his legions of adoring fans were sure that he would rise to become a hero, a miraculous symbol of hope that would put South Africa on the map and show the world that there was no such thing as impossible. But for all the promise that day offered, fate would have a different plan in store. Oscar Pistorius's stint as the golden child of South Africa did not last long at all. Nobody could ever have predicted that less than six months later, he would go from being a nationally adored sporting legend to a globally despised cold-blooded killer, literally overnight. Oscar Leonard Carl Pistorius was born on the 22nd of November in 1986 in Johannesburg in South Africa. With one older and one younger sibling, Oscar was a middle child of his father, Henk Pistorius, a prominent businessman, and his mother, Sheila Pistorius. The Pistorius family lived a largely middle-class lifestyle thanks to Hank's business success, but this didn't necessarily mean life was easy. Oscar's childhood was a turbulent one, marred by trauma and shaped by great personal tragedy. After being born without a fibula in either of his legs, it was predicted by the doctors who had cared for him that he would be very unlikely to develop the ability to walk unaided. And therefore, baby Oscar's parents made the difficult decision to have their son's legs amputated below the knee just before his first birthday, which I cannot imagine having to make such a decision as as a parent on your baby boy that you're going to go ahead with a double amputation of of legs. It's It's crazy. crazy. And I I think potentially... In nowadays, you may have an easy, not an easy decision, but an easier, slightly easier decision because you'll see people like Oscar Pistorius, for example, in the past and you'll see people and the technology we have now. But if you think about when he was born and, and when this was happening, you, you'd not know for sure that actually prosthetics would be good enough and that people could develop things that actually would be as good as normal legs. And this is, yeah, what a hard, hard decision to make. Absolutely, yeah. And it was, I mean, what would that be? 30, 35 years ago. So it's a long time ago, really. And you are right, even the language that we use now really champions disability. And um, yeah, it's it's almost been rebranded as such. And, and we see all of these role models who go on to achieve amazing things. And, and equally, people who just set about living an ordinary life that's not marred by an inability to do what other people do. Six months after Oscar's double amputation, he did begin walking successfully, though, after adapting surprisingly well to a pair of standard prosthetic legs. 
As he grew older, he was able to live a relatively normal childhood despite this disability, and he even got heavily involved in sports, enjoying cricket, wrestling and boxing. Despite his sporting successes, young Oscar still had to endure significant hardship, adversity and bullying throughout his childhood. And at the age of six, his parents divorced. It was acrimonious and the fallout resulted in Oscar developing a strained relationship with his father. It's understood that he had a particularly close relationship with his mother, however, but when he was just 15 years old, she died suddenly and unexpectedly in hospital after complications following a hysterectomy, which is incredibly sad at the age of 15 for a boy to lose his mum, especially if you're not very close to to your dad either. It's, It's so sad. This tragic event was devastating for Oscar and he channeled his grief and anger into sport. At the age of 16, he badly ruptured his knee during a rugby match and was forced to rest up and recuperate for several weeks. His recovery was a slow process and in need of a sport that could help him to rebuild his strength, he turned his attention to track and field. Nobody, Oscar included, expected him to be as good or as fast as he was, but he excelled at it and before long he was hooked. It's so fascinating, isn't it? All this hardship and adversity that he's having to face... And that this is what he then comes out at the other side. It's really fascinating. You can see that it's the driving force to go on to achieve sporting prowess, yeah. Mm. Oscar's rise in the sport was rapid. In January 2004, he competed in his first competitive 100 metre race. Eight months later, he bought a pair of flex foot cheetahs, a lightweight carbon fibre pair of artificial feet that more closely resembled blades and made no attempt to resemble actual human limbs, which I love that idea that, you know, own it and and it's unique to you. And he really made that his thing. And he, of course, as we said, was known as the Blade Runner for that reason. Wearing these blades, Pistorius brought home gold in the 200 metre race at the 2004 Athens Paralympics. Following his win in Athens, he competed in several races in South Africa against able-bodied athletes. His phenomenal success attracted even greater widespread attention, and European race organisers were soon inviting Pistorius to their events. And it was also due to this stunning run of success that Pistorius acquired his now infamous nickname, as I said, the Blade Runner. And his profile really started to build around this time and the press humorously dubbed him the fastest man on no legs, which I loved as well. However, Oscar's artificial legs also became a source of controversy. In 2007, the International Association of Athletic Foundations banned him from competing, stating that his artificial legs gave him an unfair advantage over able-bodied athletes. And I kind of get that because I, I, I've i always thought that. I'm like, you, that must be an advantage over an able-bodied athlete. Thoughts, Bethan? Oh, I disagree because I feel like an able-bodied athlete has automatically from birth had the balance and the same like they've had those legs or do you know what I mean like I've had my legs all my life I've not had to learn to use them in any way shape or form somebody might have better trainers than me and be able to run better because they've got more support stuff like that but I've never really agreed with this whole thing of those artificial legs could give an unfair advantage because like in my opinion it's equal he's still got to run using them whether they're amazing or not you could give them to me and I wouldn't necessarily be able Mm. to run in them it's the athlete 
So yeah, I I definitely disagree with that. No, that's fair enough. And we're all built differently as well. So, you know, it would almost perhaps be like saying if one athlete is six foot four and the other's uh, five foot 11, has the taller athlete got an advantage over the shorter athlete? Yeah, I, I do kind of understand where you're coming from. Exactly. And it sounds like you were on the judging panel of, of the appeal because um, he did appeal that decision and uh, he won. He won his appeal in May 2008 and um, they overturned the decision. So he was able to compete with able-bodied athletes. After missing the cut for the 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing, a determined Pistorius focused his training on making the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. And along the way, he secured three gold medals at the 2011 IPC Athletic World Championships. Two more titles followed in the 400m and the 100m events at the BT Paralympics World Cup, so he's quite happy to, to play in both. In spring 2012, he realised his ultimate dream, though, when he qualified for the 400-metre race at the London Olympics. And in doing so, he became the first amputee athlete in recorded sporting history to compete in the regular Olympics. The fact that he was ultimately eliminated in the semi-final round was irrelevant. Oscar Pistorius's legacy was now complete. He had secured his place in the history books. By all accounts, he was at the embryo stages of a highly promising and wildly exciting athletics career at this point. The man, now nationally adored and globally admired, literally had the world at his metaphorical feet. All eyes were on him. In November 2012, Oscar met an up-and-coming 29-year-old model, Reva Steenkamp, and the pair soon became smitten with each other almost immediately. Reva was a hot topic in the South African media at the time. She'd already enjoyed an immensely successful modelling career and she was now on the cusp of launching an exciting TV career as a presenter and reality TV star. Naturally, the national media took a big interest in two of the country's most popular personalities stepping out together publicly. And I don't think it hurts that they're both very hot people as well. Like I feel like that's not going to make a a bad thing for trying to sell papers they're both fit so they're both much loved all of that sort of thing it's just perfect for tabloids isn't it i think i feel like at one point when we used to discuss this case at work i said he's far too handsome to have been responsible for this but um (laughs) i do take i do take that back Uh, but yeah people do bad things too Exactly. And um, they have been referred to as South Africa's version of Posh and Becks, which I get at the time. They they did have this massive profile. So, um, yeah, they, they were absolutely hot property. Reva Steenkamp has been described as the sweetest human being and an absolute angel on earth. She was a rising star and there was so much in the pipeline for her at this time. At the time of her death, she was just 29 years old and at the very peak of her personal and professional life. She was also a law graduate, she was, as we know, a successful model, and about to become a recognised face on international TV. Reva Steenkamp was born on the 19th of August in 1983 in Cape Town in South Africa to her father Barry Steenkamp, a horse trainer, and his second wife June. We don't know what her job is, so let's say housewife. Uh, Reva had two older siblings and she began modelling at the age of 14 and her modelling career really took off and that was like straight away from the age of 14. But with brains as well as beauty, a curse I have to bear myself. <laughs> such she a aspired curse to, you, Mark. <laughs> Such a curse. She aspired to be much more than just a pretty face, unlike me. 
After finishing school, Reva enrolled on a law course at the Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University and she graduated from that in 2005 and that same year she became a finalist in the Herald Miss Port Elizabeth contest. And then not long afterwards, because of the profile she gained from becoming a finalist in that contest, she then featured on the cover of FHM in South Africa, which would have been a huge deal. Those magazines were massive. Yeah. And as her popularity grew, so too did her career. She was the first face of Avon Cosmetics in South Africa. And she also modelled for Sivana Diamonds, a major jewellery company. And after that, she became one of South Africa's most sought after models. So she appeared in advertisements for several international brands, including Toyota, KFC, Cardinal Beer, Tiger Beer. She was in demand. She was making decent money and really building that profile, certainly in South Africa. But it was on the cusp of of going international for her. So, yeah, it didn't take long for Reva to gain celebrity status in South Africa, and her newfound fame opened several doors into the world of television and show business. In 2012, age 28, she featured as a celebrity contestant on the BBC lifestyle show Baking Made Easy. I think that was a South African BBC offshoot. And the same year, she was enlisted as a celebrity contestant for season five of the adventure reality show Tropica Island, which I think is a bit like I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. So basically like Bake Off and I'm a Celeb. That's pretty, that would be pretty massive in this country, wouldn't it? Totally, yeah. Her on-air persona and endearing, humble and down-to-earth personality earned her the love and respect of countless millions of adoring fans across South Africa. Her intense popularity in South Africa further increased when she became an advocate for women's rights and she began dedicating so much of her time and celebrity status to speaking out against the rape and violence against women. And that was especially hard hitting in South Africa because it's a nation that has for years been plagued by exceptionally high rates of domestic and sexual violence committed by men against women. Um, and yeah, she, she was a real advocate for this and took it incredibly seriously. So it was around this time in November 2012, at the very peak of her fame, and with so much more to come for her, that Reva met Oscar Pistorius. For their first date on the 4th of November in 2012, Oscar took Reva to the South African Sporting Awards Ceremony. There, the new couple openly flaunted their relationship to the countless paparazzi, journalists and camera crews. They looked adoringly at each other and, yeah, it was a real love story unfolding before the public's eyes. And you will have probably, I'm sure you will have seen footage of them together at this award ceremony. I have. It's it's quite famous footage. And she does a piece to camera, various interviews on the red carpet, and is just lovely, isn't she? He kind of hangs back a bit. Even though they're um, at the Sporting Awards, like, he still kind of puts her forward a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah, he he does. Uh, and I think they're probably both conscious at this point that actually, yes, we're in, we're in this new relationship and it, it's all going really well. And I'm sure it will develop into really, really intense, strong feelings and we'll fall in love if we aren't already. But I think they were probably both astute enough to know that actually we're also going to increase our profile and we've got a brand in the making here. And good for them. I think it it, it would have gone on had things been different to uh, to be huge. Absolutely. Um, Very sadly, though, as we all know, it wasn't to be. Less than three months after that public outing together, Reva would lie dead and Oscar would be in jail, charged with her murder. 
On the 13th of February in 2013, Reva and Oscar spent the evening at Oscar's home in Pretoria in South Africa. It was initially reported that they had eaten a meal together and then turned in early, just after 9 o'clock. Later that night, in the very early hours, neighbours of Oscar Pistorius were awoken by loud, high-pitched screams coming from his property. The screams were closely followed by four loud gunshots and then an eerie, sickening silence. The disturbance was closely followed by a highly distressed Oscar making a frantic call to the emergency services, reporting that he had accidentally shot his girlfriend in the bathroom of his home after wrongly believing that she was an intruder. Oscar hung up the call and promptly ran onto his balcony and screamed out to his neighbours and security staff for help. Several of his neighbours, who had already been awoken by screaming and gunshots, now rushed to the scene, and one of the first to attend was Oscar's next-door neighbour, who happened to be a doctor. His name was Dr Johan Stipp. Dr Stipp would later testify to a judge that he found Oscar praying over Reva's body when he arrived at the scene, and that the first thing he remembered Pistorius saying when he saw him was, I shot her, I thought she was a burglar, I shot her. Dr Stipp battled in vain to save Reva's life because guess what, she was still alive at this point and I will go on to detail her injuries in a moment but it's shocking that she didn't die immediately. So in Dr Stipp's initial examination of Reva he noted that she had no peripheral pulse, she showed no signs of breathing movements and her pupils were fixed and fully dilated. She'd been hit once in the arm, once in the pelvis and had also sustained a fatal gunshot wound to the head. So that would be that would go on to be the, the wound that would prove to be fatal. And it was apparent that she'd been mortally wounded and Dr. Stipp knew in that moment that she would not survive this ordeal. And of course he was right. Shortly afterwards, paramedics arrived. Reva Steenkamp was pronounced dead at the scene then. The following day, Reva had been scheduled to appear at a South African girls' school to give a talk to the students about domestic violence against women and girls. And doesn't this just highlight such a cruel and tragic irony here, that one of South Africa's biggest celebrities, a woman who had dedicated her life to ending domestic violence against women, was now the victim of a domestic incident herself, brutally shot and killed by her very own boyfriend. Reva's autopsy revealed that she had been shot by a 9mm pistol which had fired a black talon ammunition. And this type of ammunition is designed to essentially explode on impact and cause catastrophic damage to its target, so you can imagine the damage this did to Reva's body. When the police arrived, Oscar Pistorius admitted immediately that he had been the one who had shot and killed Reva, but he insisted that he had done so by accident when he woke up and wrongly believed that there were intruders inside his home. He said he'd shot them through a closed door, he just thought it was an intruder and of course not Reva. According to him, he didn't realise until after the shooting that his girlfriend was no longer in the bed, and that's when it dawned on him what he'd done. He claimed that he had put on his blades, then used a cricket bat to smash the door down to get to Reva, and he then obviously called the emergency services, and he stressed multiple times to the police that he had simply panicked when he believed that his home was under attack from intruders, and with no time to think, he used those exact words, I had no time to think, He'd fired three or four shots through the door um, before he knew it. Nevertheless, the police arrested him and took him in for questioning. 
As the tragic news of Reva's killing swept across the grief-stricken nation, it wasn't long before Pistorius's version of events began circulating in the South African media. And almost immediately, online social media commentary from around the world began to pour scorn on his story. The events of that night were also heavily contested by Reva's family and friends, who publicly highlighted how little sense it made that a burglar would intentionally lock themselves into a bathroom, or that Oscar could have somehow failed to notice upon waking up that Reva was no longer lying next to him in bed. And I have to, I mean, one, that's quite damning that straight away they aren't buying his story. So they would have met him, I'm sure, at this point, And they've clearly, you know, got the measure of him pretty quickly. They've not taken to him. I think if you'd taken to your daughter's partner, you would give them the benefit of the doubt initially. But very quickly, they are um, contesting his version of events. And also, yeah, it just makes no sense. Why would a burglar barricade themselves in a bathroom um they would have been able to get out of that house i i remember at the time i used to kind of i believed his story for quite a long while like i really believed his side even with people saying but what about this what about not noticing that she's not slept next to you and i did really kind of believe that narrative for quite a long while myself because i was kind of like you know what i don't know what it's like to live in south africa i don't know what it's like to live in a country where having a gun and having to protect yourself with a gun is the norm and i can't understand it fully i don't live in a massive mansion like he did and when you wake up in the middle of the night you can be re- really disorientated but actually then after i think i was probably one of the few people that kind of was like but maybe <laughs> Let's listen to his side of the story. I don't know, but it's, it just doesn't it's really possible. make sense when you think about it properly, does it? It doesn't. But again, we're kind of going back in retrospect, breaking it down with the benefit of hindsight. That's true. Um, you know, part there's, there is a part of me, maybe ten percent, that believes he is innocent. Ninety um, percent of me certainly thinks he did it. But it's it's plausible some of this that he's woken up perhaps from a violent dream. And um, something's jolted him awake and he's panicked and he is vulnerable because I think when he didn't have his prosthetic legs on, he was below five foot and obviously doesn't have the ability to move you around You say below five quickly. foot, but I'm only just over five foot, Mark. It's, we're That's not true. that short. That is true. It's not that no. scary a world. <laughs> but, but you also don't have to walk on stumps. No, and this is the other thing. It, it is when you're normally, what, six foot or whatever he was, so... Yeah. Yeah. And also he's got his girlfriend staying over, so he might be thinking, you know, I need to be the alpha male here and protect her. And when we look back at that episode about sleepwalking, and I mean, obviously this is very different because he's never tried to say that he was doing this in his sleep or anything to do with it being prompted by a dream. But like you said, he could have had a really violent dream. Um, That person, the chap in that story, one of the cases in that episode, he was thinking about the, the people doing... But like they were doing donuts and stuff, weren't they? And he did think like one of them had broken in. And so potentially you could think, well, he's Mm. heard about a load of break-ins in the local area. He's had a nasty dream and he's heard this noise and his brain's just kind of put four and four together and got 10 and it's, it's not the right answer. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's always, I think you said right at the, the top of the episode that this is a case that continues to spark debate and to be discussed widely. And yeah, I think it will always continue to do that because we're doing it now. There is an element, I think, in both of us that thinks he could have been telling the truth, but probably wasn't. 
Um, but for years, it, it was widely debated. But yeah, I think it still is. So the suspicions of all concerned were further validated when Pretoria police launched a murder investigation and quickly established several inconsistencies between Oscar's version of events and the physical and forensic evidence that was discovered at the crime scene. The police interviewed all of Oscar's neighbours and questioned them extensively on what they had seen and heard that night. The first couple to provide clues were Michelle Berger and Charles Johnson, who both testified to waking up at around 3am to the sound of a woman screaming and a man then screaming for help. Johnson said he rushed to call security, but upon his return to his balcony, he heard four gunshots. Michelle Berger described how there was a clear gap between the first and second shots, indicating strongly that Oscar had possibly hesitated and had had time to consider his actions. And this was suspicious mainly because Oscar's initial story detailed how he had fired off four shots in rapid succession without having time to even think about it. Michelle Berger's revelation of a time gap between shots gave investigators reason to refute that narrative of I kind of acted before before I knew it, I'd fired all these shots. And both Berger and Johnson alleged that the screaming stopped once the final three shots were fired. And this detail would soon cast enormous doubt over Oscar's claim that he was unaware of who he was shooting at, as Reva could be heard by the neighbours screaming for her life as the shots rang out. I mean, that's damning. Hmm. Another witness, Estelle van der Meer, claimed that she woke an hour before the shots rang out to the sound of a woman's raised voice. She said it sounded as if there was an argument going on. She went back to sleep, but was later woken by the sound of four gunshots. Johan Stipp, the doctor who was the first to try and save Reva's life, also told police how he and his wife had been woken around a similar time, 3am, to blood-curdling and petrified screams and a man shouting, with the woman's screams coming to a stop once the final three shots were fired. So, yeah, it does, you know, you've got multiple witnesses there that are saying there's this screaming going on, there's a shot fired that's possibly missed Reva, and, or Oscar's, you know, stood at that doorway, she's locked in the bathroom, he's shouting at her, she's screaming, they can hear that, so clearly he knows there's someone in there screaming, it's a woman, it's her, and then he fires three more shots and they prove to be fatal, so it does cast an enormous amount of doubt on the fact that he didn't know who was behind that door. The physical evidence taken from inside Oscar's property didn't outwardly support his version of events that night either. The markings left on the bathroom door by the cricket bat were consistent with Oscar's height without his prosthetic legs and were of similar height to where the shots were fired. And this was suspicious because Oscar had initially told investigators that he had put his prosthetic legs on before the shooting. Furthermore, the state's pathologist examined Reva's stomach contents and concluded that she had eaten roughly two hours prior to her death, which contradicted Oscar's claim that they were both in bed asleep between 9 and 10. So clearly they had been up until 1 o'clock in the morning at least. The circumstantial and physical evidence was more than enough to cast serious doubt over Oscar's claim that the killing had been accidental, and he was duly charged with first-degree murder. The public, meanwhile, were furious. On social media, millions of people from all over the world bitterly condemned Oscar for what was, as they saw it, an outright murder. Very few people were able to accept that the killing had been accidental, pointing out the seemingly countless absurdities and inconsistencies in his story. 
The case became a media frenzy and Oscar Pistorius instantly lost his sporting hero status and became at best a meme and at worst an object of the public's anger and hatred. In one Facebook post that went viral, a social media user simply wrote, I heard a funny noise whilst in bed last night, so I jumped up and did all of the usual stuff. Checked the front door, checked the window, shot my girlfriend four times, checked the back door. Turns out there was no one there, which I thought was fucking hilarious, actually. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, you know, there is this huge amount of ridicule at this time that, you know, this is complete bullshit. You know, it's absolute bollocks, this story that you're spouting about it being an accident. I think it's a really tough one, isn't it? Because at the at the centre of this, a woman's lost her life, which is horrendous. And obviously these people aren't taking the mickey out of that whatsoever, but they're taking the mickey out of just the fact that he's got this story and he's sticking to it. And I do get that, but I was one of those people who was kind of like, do you know what? I I do believe his side. And I'd see posts like that and I'd be like, there's more to it than this. <laughs> I did for a long time. And I feel like we probably disagreed for a while about this because I was more willing to believe his side of things for a lot longer. And yeah, yeah you're you right were. when you said before, like there's still a little bit of me that kind of goes, what if he was telling the truth? Yeah, I think uh, you're right though. I remember now for a long time you you felt he was wholly innocent. Of course, I'm sure you felt... Not innocent of time- anything else. No. Manslaughter, absolutely no. guilty. But yeah, yeah, innocent of murder. Certainly that there was more to it, yeah. Um, I think I did initially and then I thought, no, this this sounds so alarming and it doesn't sound it doesn't ring true to me um but like i say even now all these years later there's that 10 percent of me that that has doubts in his conviction so despite all of this public ridicule and the overwhelming inconsistencies uh in his story oscar did stick rigorously to this trespasser defense Oscar Pistorius's premeditated murder trial commenced on the 4th of March in 2014 at the High Court in South Africa, in Pretoria, and that was more than a year after the killing. And in a pre-trial hearing, he provided an affidavit to the court in which he stated the following. By about 10 o'clock on the 13th of February in 2013, we were in our bedroom. Reva was doing her yoga exercises and I was in bed watching television. My prosthetic legs were off. After Reva finished her yoga exercises, she got into bed and we both fell asleep. During the early morning hours of the 14th of February 2013, I woke up, went onto the balcony to bring the fan in and closed the sliding doors, the blinds and the curtains. I heard a noise in the bathroom and realised that someone was in there. I believed that someone had entered my house and I was too scared to switch a light on. I grabbed my 9mm pistol from underneath my bed. On the way to the bathroom, I screamed words to the effect for him, them, to get out of my house and for Reva to phone the police. It was pitch dark in the bedroom and I thought Reva was in bed. I noticed that the bathroom window was open. I realised that the intruder was, or the intruders were, in the toilet because the toilet door was closed and I did not see anyone in the bathroom. So just for clarity, this is one of those posh bathrooms where... Heaven forbid the toilet's on display all the time. It's the kind of hidden behind a separate door and there's just a toilet in there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember when I first had a look at the crime scene photos because I just couldn't quite understand it. I was it, I was thinking of like my house and I was like, this is nothing yeah. like my house. <laughs> no, no. And I think it's over multiple stories. It, I don't think it was quite a mansion, but it was a very upmarket house. It was mm. a large house for sure on a, on this kind of gated estate. 
So Oscar went on to say, uh, yeah, he kind of realizes that somebody is behind the toilet door. Um, he said, I heard movement inside the toilet. The toilet is inside the bathroom and has a separate door. I probably didn't need to explain all of that because he does it for us. And there's just a bit more of this that I wanted to read in his own words, because I think it's important that we put his side fully uh, forward. He goes on to say, it filled me with horror and fear of an intruder or intruders being inside the toilet. I thought he or they must have entered through the unprotected windows. As I did not have my prosthetic legs on and felt extremely vulnerable, I knew I had to protect Reva and myself. I believed that when the intruder or intruders came out of the toilet, we would be in grave danger. I felt trapped as my bedroom door was locked and I have limited mobility on my stumps. I fired shots at the toilet door and shouted to Reva to phone the police. She didn't respond, and I moved backwards out of the bathroom, keeping my eyes on the bathroom entrance. Everything was pitch dark in the bedroom, and I was still too scared to switch on a light. When I reached the bed, I realised that Reva was not in the bed. That is when it dawned on me that it could have been Reva who was in the toilet. I returned to the bathroom, calling her name. I tried to open the toilet door, but it was locked. I rushed back into the bedroom and opened the sliding door, exiting onto the balcony and screamed for help. Oscar went on to explain how he put on his prosthetic legs at this point and then tried to kick down the toilet door. When that didn't work, he moved back to the bedroom to get his cricket bat. He used the bat to then smash holes in the door and one of the door panels broke open, which then enabled him to reach inside and to open the lock. And then once inside, he found Reva. She was barely alive and clearly mortally wounded, bleeding heavily and slumped over the toilet. The summary of Oscar's defence was simple enough. By shooting at what he believed to be an intruder, he believed he was acting in self-defence. He had no intention or motive to kill Reva, which I still have to... Of course, they might have had this massive argument, She might have been refusing to come out of the toilet and he just kind of saw red and lost it. But otherwise, there's no motive here, is there, do you think? It's a really tough one, isn't it? Because um, this is kind of the element, I guess, that made me focus on potentially his innocence for such a long time was that the the reasons given throughout the trial, I I may be wrong and I know we'll go on to it, but the reasons never sort of rung true enough for me. Just jealousy and and that sort of thing just didn't, they'd not been together very long. They were in the throes of this new relationship. And I think that that loss, lack of a motive was kind of probably one of the key things for me. Also, the fact that they're in South Africa, it's a dangerous country. There probably would have been other ways to do things that would be a lot less public, where you wouldn't even have to necessarily admit to manslaughter if you wanted Mm. rid of somebody. It had to have been, like you said, just in the moment he saw red because of an argument and it it just felt odd to me. The the only other explanation, which is highly probable, well, obviously, you know, yeah, there's that explanation that he just kind of freaked out, saw red and, and, and obviously fired those shots to kill her. But of course, the, the, there's lots of hints that this relationship was domestically abusive and and there's sort of rumors that it was domestically violent as well so in terms of domestic abuse that that was proven in court subsequently in text message exchanges he was very controlling i don't know if i completely missed that interesting In, in terms of domestic violence that was hinted at but there was no actual proof of that but it could just be that the that this sort of relationship had 
escalated so quickly into domestic violence and and culminated like so much domestic violence can in murder of the victim and it just all happened in the space of three months it's possible so it could just be that that he was just um, perpetrating this campaign of terror and violence against her and it ended of course in the way that it did. Oscar's lawyers claimed that the witnesses who had claimed to have heard Reva screaming for her life must have been mistaken. You're going to love this, Bethan. They argued that the screams were coming from Oscar himself and claimed that his scream was particularly high-pitched and girl-like. Which I, mean, I thought you'd... It reminds me of you telling a staff member that his singing was girly when he made <laughs> a little list. That. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, fucking hell. That was so funny. Benjina. It was just Benjina. a little jokey thing, but he was like, Mark shook my te- chair violently and told me my singing <laughs> was like a girl. <laughs> I was his boss and uh, he wrote a list of about 24 things that he was going to go to HR about that I'd done. Jokingly, um, obviously, but like, yeah, hilarious. Obviously joking, yeah. All yeah. of them and I, I, Yeah, I used to shake his chair violently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were the days, Bethan, weren't they? what I will say is it doesn't matter who you are. If you are in the throes of something terrible happening, your scream will be high-pitched and yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, like, and I know it's. I know we're not allowed to really joke, or like laugh about this anymore. That there's this really masculine man that's then got this high pitched girly scream, and yeah, that's his right like, to have that. But I find it would. kind of funny that juxtaposition. And I think um, that's yeah. why they were kind of they. Were, that was quite a lot in the media at the time as well, and it shouldn't have been funny. Like that's just potentially mm. if if he's telling the truth, that's how he reacted to something. Potentially. He reacted like that because he just suddenly realised he's murdered his girlfriend. Like, what a horrible realisation when you didn't yeah. need to do that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it could have been something like that. Or it's not his screams. Or maybe it was his... I just... It's just... Yeah. A, it's such a ridiculous thing to try and say, isn't it? Like, those neighbours yeah. say they heard her. That is their decision to say that they they knew her voice and they said it was her. Mm. It's just, yeah, I don't think we're ever going to know for definite. No. We can know pretty much, but um, but anyway, yeah, so he squeals like a little bitch at this point. Um, so the court then had to consider Mark, whether they believed. You are. Well, I had to, didn't I? A convicted um, murderer, at least you're not saying it about a victim, Mark. <laughs> oh, I'd never do that. Exactly. Never. I'd, like always try and have utmost respect for victims and their families. But yeah, we do laugh at sometimes the perpetrators and I think it's fine to do that mm. and to take the piss out of them because they're dicks. Um, so the court heard, uh, then had to consider whether they believed that firing the shots was something that a reasonable person would have done if everything he'd said was true. So even in such a distressing and frightening set of circumstances and you believe there's an intruder there, is that a normal reaction to have that you would uh, not kind of physically shake your girlfriend awake or touch her and, and that you would go to the bathroom and actually fire four shots? Perhaps in South Africa, I know that's quite a sweeping statement, but there is a lot of violent crime and yeah, people do have guns in their homes. America quite similar, I suppose. So yeah, you know, is it reasonable? I think it's difficult for us to say, um, but as a South African, I think you'd probably be able to um, have a better take on that perhaps. It reminds me of the episode we did, um, the two-parter with the different cases. How far would you go to protect your own home and your family? Yeah. And we got loads of um, listener contributions to that episode, those episodes because some of those people reacted the same way any of us would. Some of them went a bit too far, but everyone kind of goes, do you know what? In the heat of the moment, I get it. But then some of them, you think, no, that's, you've, you are going too far. And so, yeah, this is a really interesting point for me 
this is a crazy overreaction, I'd be grabbing my mobile phone and I'd be, or even he's got security teams in his Mm. house. I'd be doing something like that, but I don't live in that area that he lived in. I don't know the the place, so I don't know. You've not had the upbringing he has had uh, with that vulnerability that Mm -hmm. he feels. Um, And also, is is there such a thing as a reasonable person? In a situation like this, I'd like to think, you know, most people are reasonable in their everyday life. But when faced with a unique set of circumstances like this, then I would say most people probably wouldn't have what we would, after the event, consider a reasonable reaction. I I don't know. So, of course, if the court were able to conclude that this was a reasonable mistake that a reasonable person could have made in that situation, then um, Oscar would have been convicted of manslaughter rather than murder. So, of course, it's really important to think, you know, yeah, we know he's kind of shot and killed Reva, but are we kind of buying that that this is a, a set of circumstances, a set of events that that actually, you know, is plausible? Oscar's lawyers also showed the jury a Valentine's Day card that Reva had given to Oscar on the night that she died. The message inside, handwritten by Reva herself, read, Roses are red, violets are blue. I think today is a good day to tell you that I love you. The defence had Oscar himself tearfully read this message aloud in court and then asked the judge if they really believed that Reva was suffering in a violent and controlling relationship when she wrote that card. The prosecution began their gruelling five-day-long cross-examination of Oscar on the 24th of March. The court heard detailed analysis of hundreds of WhatsApp messages exchanged between Oscar and Reva. And whilst many of them were described as loving and normal, there were others that painted a troubled picture of a much more toxic relationship. It was obvious that Oscar was intensely jealous and possessive of Reva, and he constantly accused her of sleeping around and of doing drugs. There didn't appear to be any basis whatsoever for these allegations, and Reva vehemently refuted and defended herself against all of them. Instead, she counter-accused Oscar of jealousy and possessiveness. In one of the messages sent less than three weeks before her killing, Reva told Oscar, I'm scared of you sometimes, of how you snap at me. And she described his behaviour as nasty. Overall, the analysis of the texts revealed that Reva had gotten herself a selfish, jealous, self-obsessed and tantrum-prone boyfriend. The toxicity of the messages even led some to suggest Oscar may have been physically violent towards Reva, although, as I said earlier, that was never fully verified as being true or false. Oscar's hypocrisy, childishness and double standards were also highlighted. Before meeting Reva, he certainly hadn't been afraid to use his celebrity status to sleep around. As such, Reva was forced to endure countless stories about Oscar's antics in the press. However, even the mere mention of Reva having male friends or even platonic male acquaintances was more than enough to send Oscar into a jealous rage. Both Oscar and Reva were strong, ambitious and assertive individuals, and as such, the couple spent much of the first three months engaged in highly toxic, bitter arguments. Indeed, the prosecution tried to leverage the bitter content of these messages to paint a picture of what they, and many others, now believe took place in Oscar's house that night. A basic summation of the prosecution's argument is that Oscar and Reva became embroiled in a bitter argument on the night of the 13th of February in 2013, which quickly got out of hand. Driven wild with jealousy and rage, Oscar finally snapped and attacked Reva physically. She fled to the bathroom and locked herself in, where she thought she would be safe from him. Instead, Oscar got his 9mm firearm from the bedside drawer and fired several shots through the bathroom door, 
deliberately killing her. After breaking down the door with a cricket bat and seeing Reva dead, Oscar called the emergency services and provided them with a fake story about killing Reva by accident after mistaking her for an intruder. Further zeroing in on Oscar's claim that he had shot Reva because he thought she was an intruder, the prosecution was quick to lay scorn and ridicule on him. Oscar had earlier claimed that he had woken up and heard noises coming from the bathroom, which he believed to be coming from an intruder in the house. The prosecution claimed that it was simply impossible that Oscar could wake up in a blind panic, believing his home was being invaded by robbers, and not notice that Reva was not now beside him in bed. They also questioned the likelihood of an intruder choosing to barricade themselves in a small bathroom with no windows or any other means of escape. And I think that was possibly the turning point for me was the fact that he woke up in a blind panic and rather than even just like reaching over to just grab her and be like, there's someone in the house, like I'm going to go do something, which I feel like most rational people would do. Although what I will say is, They hadn't been living together for a long time. It wasn't potentially their normal routine. But I feel like you'd wake up and you'd go, oh my God, tap, tap, tap. There's someone in the house. Stay there, but you might need to call the police in a second. That, I think, is the the point for me. I think, and I might be wrong, because there's so many fucking intricacies with this story and um, the story changed a bit here and there. But I feel like Oscar had got out of bed he to fetch two fans in from the balcony and when he returned from the balcony to the bedroom that's when he heard the noise so he hadn't then gotten back into bed um i might be wrong like and the room might be absolutely massive again again compared with my bedroom i'm gonna be able to see if someone's in bed and it was also the whole thing of like the bathroom you can see around but the bedroom is pitch black and stuff like that i just feel like I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm now much more suspicious. At the time, I was kind of like, yep, I get it. <laughs> um, so throughout the court proceedings, especially during his gruelling five-day-long cross-examination by the court prosecution, um, Oscar had several emotional outbursts, which included bouts of extreme crying, howling, and even vomiting. And I remember this because, of course, it was televised because it was in South Africa. And, um, you know, he was beyond distressed when he was giving evidence or listening to testimony from witnesses and uh, forensic, you know, pathologists in regards to her injuries and showing pictures and stuff. You know, of course it's distressing, but was it an over-the-top presentation of distress that was fake or was it just that it was so disturbing to him that, yeah, he was screaming and howling and vomiting? I don't know, again, Mm. you know, it depends. You could see it from both angles. You could see that it would back up his claim that this was an accident, but equally it could be that it's forced and crocodile tears. I don't know. Mm, It's just so hard to know, isn't it? When asked in court to explain what happened, he cried so violently that he could barely maintain his posture and he stopped making coherent sense. And several times the judge had to temporarily adjourn proceedings in order to allow Oscar to calm down. And I remember the judge was very unsympathetic and you know, very annoyed that proceedings were being interrupted so much because he was breaking down so much. So yeah, they they weren't happy about the way Oscar was behaving, uh, which is is very sad if, uh, if this was an accident. You might, that does, that does kind of look like you're giving away what you think by the end already, though. And I, you should be less prejudiced, you should just be like completely open to hear everything. Yeah, 
until the end when you give your verdict. Mm. When Oscar was finally able to speak calmly, he stuck staunchly to his narrative that he had killed Reva by accident in a case of mistaken identity. Breaking down in floods of tears, he sobbed as he recounted his version of events. He stuck to his original story, that on the night of the shooting, the couple had eaten dinner at around 7pm before watching television and then falling asleep between 9 and 10 o'clock. Oscar said that he had woken up in the early hours and Reva had asked him, Can't you sleep, my baba? Um, Oscar told the court he could not sleep due to the humidity and he'd gotten up and brought in two fans from the balcony. He then described how a short while later he'd heard a strange noise coming from the bathroom. So I don't know if that was like a short while as in three seconds later or he'd got back into bed and, you know, 11 minutes later he hears this noise. I just don't know. Can't remember. Um, He said, that's a moment everything changed. I thought that there was a burglar that was gaining entry to my home. Oscar claimed that he immediately panicked. He grabbed his gun and he told Reva, who he thought was still in bed, to call police. Oscar's toilet was in a small room within the bathroom itself, as we said earlier, and he claimed that he could see that the bathroom was empty, but noticed that the window was open and the toilet door was closed. He said he didn't know whether the intruders were outside on a ladder or now sort of hiding in the toilet. And again, it's kind of plausible that the intruder might have just panicked and thought, shit... I'm I'm in this house, I'm in this guy's bedroom essentially, I need to just hide and he might go back to sleep and I can then come out the toilet door and rob him. Or you um, might not even know. tie him up. It might sound really silly, but you might just like hear a noise coming towards you, go through a doorway, not realising it's you're actually just locking yourself in a toilet. Yeah, that's true, very true, because it would have been dark. Um, yeah, it's, I'm so, I wouldn't say I'm on the fence with this because I do think he's guilty, but there's definitely a chunk that, of me that believes he could be innocent. Absolutely. I don't anymore, but these are all things that would be more in the favour at the time. No, honestly, at the time I was, I was so convinced that he was only guilty of manslaughter for such a long time. Mm. Um, I was really, really kind of on his side but now I don't but these are the kind of things that I would have thought at the time just well they Mm. might not have known Mm. because when you look at the pictures it could just look like a doorway to you you might think it's a doorway out into the hall yeah so with his gun now in his hand he heard a movement come from inside the toilet and thought whoever was inside was coming out to attack him and Reva Oscar cried almost hysterically when he recounted the moment that he pulled the trigger, saying, I heard a noise from inside the toilet, what I perceived to be somebody coming out of the toilet. Before I knew it, I fired four shots at the door. Oscar then told the court that the gunshots had left his ears ringing and that he continued shouting for Reva to call the police. He said he eventually retreated to the bedroom and discovered that Reva was not in the bed. Addressing the judge directly, he said, It was upon that time, my lady, that it first dawned upon me that it could be Reva that was in the bathroom or in the toilet. I jumped out of the other side of the bed and I ran my hands along the curtains to see that she wasn't hiding. I didn't want to believe it was Reva in the toilet. I was so scared that someone was coming in to attack us. I made my way inside the bathroom. I tried to grab the handle, rip open the door. I pushed the door to open and it was locked. I ran back to the room, I opened the curtains, opened the doors, and shouted from the balcony for help. I screamed, help, help, help. I screamed for somebody to help me. I put my prosthetic legs on, I ran as far as I could back to the bathroom, I ran into the door, I didn't move at all, I tried to kick the door, but nothing happened. I mean, he's, you know, this is so incoherent, because he was such a mess in court when he was Mm. giving evidence. So, you know, this is essentially him just giving his version of the story, which is picked apart a little bit in terms of when he put the 
prosthetics on, for example, you know, was that um, before or after shooting, that kind of thing. There were inconsistencies in his story. Oscar said that he then went back to the bedroom after calling for help from the balcony, picked up a cricket bat and started hitting the toilet door in a bid to open it. And after three heavy knocks, he managed to pull a plank out of it. Eventually, he found the key on the floor and unlocked the door. And then breaking down fully, he barely managed to conclude, as he said, I sat over Reva and I cried. I don't know how long. I don't know how long I was there for. Despite his heavy outpouring of remorseful emotion, the judge appeared unmoved, as I alluded to earlier, and said that she did not accept that Oscar fired the gun by accident or before he knew what was happening. She said that he'd armed himself with a lethal weapon and clearly wanted to use it. The other question she said was why he fired not one but four shots before he ran back to the room to try to find Reva. I get that though because it's behind a closed door. You're going to shoot at different angles to try and get the person that's behind there that you potentially believe is an intruder. The lead prosecutor in the case, Jerry Nell, known as a bull terrier for his aggressive interrogations, was equally unaffected by Oscar's what he called theatrics and claimed that his emotional outbursts were not due to grief but were more due to frustration because his version of events was being seen as improbable. Mr Nell also presented the court with Oscar's two previous criminal records, both of which were for firearms offences. The first offence had occurred less than a year before Reva's death Oscar had allegedly shot his gun out of the open sunroof of a car. The prosecution summoned Oscar's former girlfriend, Samantha Taylor, who testified that the sunroof incident occurred when Pistorius became angry after he was stopped for speeding by a police officer. She said Pistorius kept his gun with him all the time. She added that he was an aggressive and controlling person and um, that he could get extremely angry at times. So really painting a picture of somebody that can just freak out in this moment of extreme anger. And to have been stopped by the police for speeding, which, you know, you fucked up, own yeah, it you and get it. over it. Don't then fucking fire a, a loaded gun through the sunroof of the car. I know, like, you're really going to get in trouble then, you dick. Yeah, yeah just going like, to go, oh, what wrong. an idiot, got caught. But I think there was a lot of talk about how he'd been brought up in, in the early years of his childhood. So parents divorced at the age of six, then brought up by mum. And there was talk that the relationship between mum and son was very close, very intense. He could do no wrong. He was brought up to be incredibly entitled, um, which I think psychologists that have commented on this case have said that was almost an overreaction on mum's part of, I have a son who has a disability who is going to be held back in life. I need to instill an extreme sense of self-confidence and righteousness Mm. in this boy in order to compensate for um, the disability. Well, like um, that Johnny Cash where he says like, he names his, it's like a boy called Sue, but, and I know it's in his song, but he's like, just to make him tough, I gave him a girl's name so that he'd get bullied. So he'd have to be tough. Yeah, kind so of that. yeah. A very similar approach, and and yeah, I kind of understand it, but it had just gone too far and turned him into a bit of a narcissist. So who knows? I'm I'm no psychologist, but that's what what they say. The second offence was uh, in relation to Oscar firing someone else's handgun at a crowded restaurant just a few weeks before he shot and killed Reva. I mean, again, like. Forget the fact it's even crowded, that's appalling, but you do not fire a gun in a restaurant. I just find that absolutely preposterous. And he could have killed someone at that point, you know? I just can't believe that he's playing around with guns. It's it's mm. very silly, isn't it, Beth? 
Yeah, it's just um, even in a country where guns are more normal than we're yeah. used to, that's still ridiculous. Yeah. The court was also shown leaked footage of Oscar at a shooting range and it showed him laughing hysterically as he used a high-powered shotgun to literally obliterate watermelons which were being used as targets. And I've seen that footage, it's really disturbing. And the damage that is wrought on those watermelons, I mean, like, they just explode. It's like an atomic bomb going off inside of them. Um, And it really did paint Oscar Pistorius as this violent man who was obsessed with guns, which I think is kind of pretty fair. Mr. Nell, the prosecutor, eventually requested that Oscar undergo a mental health assessment, and the assessment concluded that he had a severe anxiety disorder which stemmed from his traumatic childhood, which is understandable, and it detailed how Oscar's mother had also been an anxious person, so much so, so that she always slept with a firearm under her pillow, so there's this sort of extreme anxiety and paranoia as well, which I think is safe to say really did pass uh, to him. So her death uh, left Oscar without his one and only emotional attachment figure. And yeah, his mother's anxious nature had had really passed on to Oscar, who himself was said to be highly strung, paranoid, and he didn't trust anyone either, not even the armed guards who were paid to protect his home. And he was perpetually nervous, um, and that's what prompted him really to purchase these legally owned firearms and to keep them in his home um, close by. Um, So we have to make that clear, that is legal, he's got them uh, legitimately. The assessment also argued that given his disability, Oscar was more likely to respond to any threat with fight rather than flight on the basis that running away was more difficult when, um, you know, the fact that he doesn't have full legs, basically. So that was really interesting. And I get it, of course. Um, You're going to have one of those two responses. We all have that in extreme situations. We will have our own response in different situations, but his is mostly going to go to fight because that's the only option for him. The evaluation also found that Pistorius was not mentally incapacitated to the extent where he couldn't tell right from wrong, but they did say that he currently suffered post-traumatic stress disorder and would need continuing psychiatric care lest he become suicidal. So again, you know, potentially pointing to the fact that this was this terrible accident. He has shot and killed the woman he loved. He's responsible for that and he didn't mean to do it and he loved her and he's dealing with that awful weight of responsibility, guilt and also the bereavement. Um, so again, could be that that's, you know, why he was, um, needing ongoing psychiatric care to not go on to, to kill himself potentially, which could have happened. As the court case edged towards its conclusion, it certainly looked from the outside like it was going to be a slam dunk victory for the prosecution and that Oscar Pistorius was indeed going to be found guilty of premeditated murder. However, on the 11th of September in 2014, the judge somewhat controversially declared that the prosecution had failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Oscar was guilty of premeditated murder, and even dropped the charge of common murder, ruling that Oscar had not subjectively foreseen that he would kill the person behind the door, let alone Reva, as he thought she was in the bedroom. However, the judge also stated that a reasonable person in the same circumstances would have considered the possibility that if he fired four shots, then whoever was behind the toilet door was likely going to die as a result. Therefore, Oscar had failed to take any steps to avoid causing death because he had acted too hastily. And to be fair, it's safe to say he had used excessive force by firing multiple shots, but... um, 
so yeah, you know, even if you're saying, well, we believe his version that he didn't think it was Reva, that he did think it was an intruder, he's still guilty of killing somebody because he, he didn't do what a reasonable person would have done. He went too far. Um, so it's a bit like if, if somebody broke into my house now and I, I woke up in the night and saw them with a, a, carrying a telly and then I grabbed a gun and shot him in the head, that's, I've done wrong then, you know, I'm not at risk and they've got both hands carrying a heavy TV and I've used excessive force. So, yeah. you know, I think... Whereas um, to stand there and hold your gun out and say, I've got a gun, get out of my house, yeah, don't come back, yeah. and you're holding it and you're saying yeah. to them, get out, then that's not... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think this is it. Like, in the heat of the moment, if you believed his story that um, he didn't know who was behind it, really, one warning shot to be like, I've got a gun... I'm calling yeah. the police. Like that makes more sense. They know that you're armed, etc. But four, ridiculous. So yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the judge totally bought his defence uh, with him saying that he didn't believe it was Reva. Um, so on the 12th of September, the judge officially found Pistorius not guilty of murder, but guilty of the manslaughter of Reva Steenkamp and the reckless endangerment of life with a firearm. And the judge's highly controversial verdict shocked and angered the entire world, who poured intense criticism on her apparent complacency. And she even received death threats online and in person, um, which is quite shocking. But of course, that's not the end of it. So just before we come on to kind of a bit more detail, on the 21st of October in 2014, so after he was found guilty of manslaughter, Pistorius was sentenced to spend a maximum of five years in prison for Reaver's manslaughter. He also received a concurrent three-year suspended sentence for his conviction of reckless endangerment. Once again, the leniency of the punishment sparked widespread outrage throughout the world and caused a great deal of frustration for Reaver's family. They begged the judge to impose a lengthier prison term. Despite this reaction, Oscar and his lawyers still put forward an appeal to have the manslaughter conviction overturned, the audacity of that Bethan. At around the same time, the court prosecution also began legal proceedings seeking to have Oscar's manslaughter conviction re-upgraded to one of murder, stating that the five-year prison term was shockingly light and would not have been imposed by any reasonable court. So by the time the renewed legal battle concluded in 2016, Oscar had already been released from prison and placed under strict house arrest for good behaviour. I think he was living with his uncle at this point. And then on July the 6th in 2016, the prosecution won their appeal and Oscar was resentenced to spend six years in prison, this time for murder, six years, rather than his original sentence of five years imprisonment for manslaughter. And he was promptly returned to custody then. And the sentence was later increased to 13 years, I think, in 2017. Um, there were more legal back, back and forths. Um, this 13-year sentence, Oscar's lawyers said should go from 2013, I think, um, or 2014 when he was found guilty. So they wanted it kind of backdated. Mm, and they said like time that, served or whatever. Yeah, which is fair, yeah. to be honest. 13 years is still woefully inadequate if he was guilty, um, which they're saying he was now. Um, and and again, you know, like this country, so it's a bit different. So it's not a life sentence with a minimum term of 13 years. It's a 13-year sentence. So he's eligible for parole before that 13 years is up. 
Whereas if it was like this country and it was a life sentence with a minimum term, you're not eligible for parole until that minimum term has been served. It's not like you commit armed robbery, get sentenced to 10 years, and you're eligible after five years for parole. Um, so in South Africa, that was kind of the, the deal for him. So as of February 2021, he's been eligible for parole. Um, and I know there's still a lot of legal back and forth now. Um, but the the long and short of this is that he's going to be out soon, anytime soon in the next year or two, I would have thought, um, which is just crazy, having been found guilty of murder eventually. Reva's mother has since publicly forgiven Oscar and has established the Reva Rebecca Steenkamp Foundation, which is a not-for-profit that aims to continue Reva's work to end domestic violence against women, which is lovely. Um, But yeah, just tragic this case. 29 years old, Oscar Pistorius has stolen the limelight in this so much and will have done in this episode even. But we need to remember Reva. She was just this incredible woman, brains and beauty, on the verge of establishing herself in, you know, international TV, a real career. And had she happened to cross paths with somebody else who wasn't a demented freak? She'd still be here and we'd we'd know her name in this country, but for all of the right reasons. So we will, like I'm sure all of you, remember her for the amazing woman that she was. R.I.P. Reva. Such an interesting episode and such an interesting case. So yeah, um, definitely the right ending to remember her. Thank you for listening, everybody. Don't forget we're on a break next week. We'll be back the following week. So we will see you then. Take care. Bye.